Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. Good Monday to each and every single one of you tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us here on the Compliance Guy Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable. I hope you all had a wonderful uh, Easter Sunday for those of you that celebrate Easter, those of you that celebrated Passover last week. I hope you had a wonderful Pesach. For those of you that have been celebrating the um, month of Ramadan, I hope you've had a, a, a wonderful month as well. And for those of you that celebrate something else, I hope your celebrations have been joyous. All right. So joining me today, uh, as always, is my distinguished cast of characters, Terry Fletcher, Scott Kraft, Stephanie Howard, Paul Spencer. We have a great program lined up for you today. As always, we are live and uh, we hope that this thing goes off without a hitch because every once in a while, something happens. So today. We're taking on coder versus auditor or auditor versus coder. Now, I know some of you are already coming into this with a preconceived notion that we're going to say something to inflame somebody or some group of healthcare professionals. That's not the purpose. That's not what we are going to do. What we want to do is we want to have a we want to have a serious conversation about what we, as consultants, as compliance professionals, as coding professionals, as uh, healthcare, you know, in general professionals, what we are seeing at the different hospitals, health systems, physician group practices that raise questions to us each and every single day. So again, I want to make sure that everybody understands we are not trying to build one side up or tear one side down. What we want to do is we want to have a very uh, a clear conversation about whose roles and responsibilities are what and where do the lines get blurry and how do we cross over those lines. So with that said, let me again welcome Terry, Paul, Scott, Stephanie. Thank you all for being here again and to each and every single one of you who's hanging out with us live on one of the eight different streaming podcasts that we're uh, showing on right now. Thank you so much for tuning in, logging on and just hanging out with us for a little while. All right. So Stephanie, because you talked so much last week, 
I want to start with you. I want to start with you on this one uh, because you raised some really good questions in an email um, earlier this morning as we were kind of talking about and and trying to figure out how we flesh out some topics for this discussion today. So why don't you kind of kick us off with what the questions posed to you have been and the scenarios that you've been observing. And let's try to start to, you know, bring some sense of clarity to what may be a unclear situation. Yeah. So and in my perspective, one of the things I wanted to bring up is kind of in opposition to what we're going to lead into um, that Terry brought up when we think about coders, auditors, things like that. So one of the things that has surprised me as a consultant is that there are a lot of facilities out there and a lot of um, larger multi-specialty organizations that don't have coders. Um, I, I feel like they don't necessarily see the value that is there in coders, the way that they help to, you know, lessen the risk as long as that's set up appropriately and monitored and managed. And by default, they're leaving the work up to the providers themselves. So with the different clients that I have, I think some of them have a really good structure in place where we can tell, you know, that things are being looked over. The providers have the proper resources in place with the amount of work that they're expected to do. But as I sit and go through some of the education sessions with, with surgeons, for example, as I'm talking, I almost want to pause and just be like, wow, you know, the level we're getting into from a coding perspective is pretty deep when this person's job is to go out and, you know, save lives. I was talking with a trauma surgeon last week and having to get to the level of NCCI edits, and I almost felt bad about it, you know. Um, but organizations have to understand, if they see something like coding services, for example, is that extra additional cost, what are you doing to help your providers that you're asking to take on all of that work? You know, with this surgeon last week, I'm getting down into the nitty gritty of, you know, talking about a coding software that the hospital has available, talking to him about how he has to account for all the CPT codes of every little bit of work he's doing, then plug it into the coding software before he goes into a charge entry process. So from a workflow perspective, that's a lot going on there. But then we also have to think about the compliance side. You know, a lot of times providers aren't even aware of the code options available in a book, let alone hunting through to get the proper one. So while, you know, facilities may think that they're saving costs in one way, I think that, you know, it is a mistake to not have the oversight. And then on top of it, I'm sure we all see it. There's so many that don't see the value in audits. Now, before we hand this off, I want to say the one client that I have that does this the most does see the value. They have a very robust um, compliance program. So they, they offer a lot of support to providers, but that's not what we see on a regular basis. We see a lot of providers out there to, you know, go through an hour training once a year, and I hope you get it right kind of thing. You know, so you raise some really great points, Stephanie. And I think let's, let's kind of unpack this a little bit, right? And I want to get, obviously, the, the panel's thoughts on this. But the first thing that kind of hits me is this. At the end of the day, 
while a lot of organizations try to coddle physicians because we don't want to upset them we want to we want to keep them happy when we want to keep them producing we don't want to lose our providers for whatever reason we all have to understand that irrespective of whether you're a group of one or part of a 5000 physician integrated delivery hospital or health system you as the billing provider are ultimately responsible to ensure the accuracy of the information on every single claim that goes out the door. Now, again, the reality of the situation is physicians, non-physician practitioners in, in, in many of these practices, healthcare organ, let's just call them healthcare organizations, and I think that will be all-encompassing, are heavily taxed, right? They're having to deal with staying on top of the latest, um, you know, um, releases of prescription drugs. They're having to stay on top of, uh, the latest technologies that are coming out. They have to be aware of, uh, stark. If they're part of a group, they have to be aware of the anti-kickback statutes, but they also have to be aware of the coding billing and documentation requirements for every single service that they provide now to your point getting down to the nitty-gritty of bundling edits nccis at some point you have to draw a line and i think this is where coders are invaluable to their organizations because a coder's job is to abstract and and y'all correct me if i'm wrong but a coder's job is to abstract information from the medical record to ensure that the codes selected by the rendering and billing provider are accurate. Let me and pause I would there. go I would go one step further, Sean, on that. That's the difference between a coder and a biller. The coder okay. has the training, they have the certification, they have the ability to go in and validate documentation. When okay. facilities have their providers doing all of the coding, it's really up mm -hmm. to that provider to know, is this appropriate? Was this a separate service? Because when you have billing staff that don't have that level of education and training behind them, they're not qualified to be making that determination with a 59 or an X modifier. We don't want things just slapped on because that's where it heightens the compliance risk. Yep. So Terry, I, I saw you kind of shaking your head, which I've I've come to expect between you and me and our ongoing relationship. Um, but do you, do you disagree with me on my take for a coder's role is no, to I, abstract information that has been put into the medical record and to ensure the accuracy of the CPT, ICD, HCPCS level two, and modifiers that have been appended. I think in a perfect world, that's a, a what a coder's job is. Unfortunately, right. we know that we don't we don't live in a perfect world, and a lot of our providers aren't giving us that perfect world to step into when we audit. Um, just one thing on Stephanie's point too. For me, if you're a coder, you're also a biller. You are. You need to know what happens at the end of that cycle. But if you're a biller, you're not necessarily a coder, and so you need to know who the coders are so that you have you know, that person, that go-to person that you can deal with, but, or I shouldn't say deal with, but um, that can give you that information that you're, you're looking for. But also we want to be cleared, you know, as far as not to alienate anybody, alienate, 
we're not just talking about certified versus non-certified. There's a lot of people out there that do coding that are billers, even auditors that may not have a certification, but have been doing this for 30 years. And so, you know, or longer or, or 20 years, whatever. So we're talking about quality people who understand the concept, who know what they're doing, who have that experience and or certification to back up a what they're doing. Absolutely. And let me make this very clear. Make sure. <laughs> let, yeah, no, let me make this very clear. I have been in trials where they have had certified whatevers who couldn't code their way out of a book. Okay. For me, a certification means that somebody had the ability to read, retain, and regurgitate on a test. Okay. That's what a certification means to me. And I'm not trying to demean it. Listen, I, I, I've, I've, I've held and hold more than 14 certifications over my now 30 years in this industry. So to me, I consider myself a life learner. I look at people that have numerous credentials after their name, and I look at them and I say, that's a life learner. But somebody with 14 credentials doesn't mean that they actually know what the heck they're talking about. It just demonstrates what I said before to be able to pass a test to get those credentials. I know people that don't have the first letter after their name, but they've been doing it for 15, 20, 30 years, whatever it is. And they are phenomenal. Right. Right. And but, I think that you know, also with physicians, I mean, we've got doctors out there, let's say cardiology space who took a weekend class on peripheral vascular stuff. And all of a sudden they're like, I'm a, I'm a specialist in peripheral vascular, not to minimize what they learned over the weekend. But then we come back to get them. So we're just trying to first set the stage saying that we know there's experience. We know there's certifications. And again, I'm certified alphabet soup behind my name. But we just want to make sure we know that we are recognizing that there is also, you know, the, the experienced people out there as well. Yeah. So, Scott, let me come to you for for a couple of moments. Obviously, love to get your thoughts on the, the on the discussion thus far. But I know you've also been experiencing some things with some of the clients that you've been engaging with very recently as what as as recent as last week where you've had some interesting conversations and some challenges that have arisen let's let's kind of explore those um yeah so there's a there's a lot going on here and and i think you know so a couple of interesting anecdotes like i i've worked with some clients who will differentiate for me services rendered by a provider that were touched by a coder versus those that were not and interestingly, you can see certain distinctions between, you know, is the level of diagnostic coding fully developed? Uh, is the correct level of CPT coding? And you can develop those variances, right? And I think one of the conversations that I find myself having often, just to link back to the beginning, right? It's like, what, what do we reasonably expect a provider to know? And then how do we build on that to ensure that the services are ultimately billed correctly, right? And to me, it goes back to those things I say quite a bit on these calls. It's organizational focus on who's accountable for which different part of things. Because, you know, we talked about the providers ultimately responsible for what goes out on the claim. But how are we supporting the provider in the right way? How are we bringing that like level set of expert knowledge you know, going back to what Stephanie said, right? Like, are we just slapping a modifier on something to to unlock the key to more money? Or do we truly understand like how these things actually work? 
Uh, and I think those are important distinctions when we see, you know, Modifier 25 put onto claims where, you know, there's like one lab service build and there's really no edit. Uh, but those are important distinctions, right? And so I think, you know, obviously I'm kind of going from point to point here, but I think one of the main things that I find myself talking about often, and and I did have a couple of these conversations with clients last week, is like, what is it? What are you reasonably expecting the provider to do and know based on their service line in their book of business? And how are you supporting them in the right way? And the last thing I'll say about this is this should not be something that exists, as I see far too often, where these people, there's a there's a physician, there's a coder, there's a biller, and these people don't talk to each other. They just kind of pass paper. Uh, and I don't think that's a recipe for success, right? Like if, if the coder doesn't feel like the physician is approachable with a question, then you're going to have a fundamental breakdown in making sure that things are done accurately because, you know, the, the physician, of course, holds the clinical knowledge. Uh, but as I sometimes say, when a physician gets agitated with me about decisions I'm making uh, and telling me that I'm not a physician, I say, well, I'm not a physician, but I'm well trained in the rules for the contract that you signed. So I understand like what you're supposed to put in these documents, doc what you're supposed to put in these notes and what you're supposed to build. So, you know, to me, that last part is the most important when we start to think about coding, auditing, billing, physician, like these people should be talking to one another. If for no other reason, then part of that fundamental relationship is understanding how to best support the physician in terms of what they're documenting versus what they may need to document. Can they, is, is there a tweak or a change they can make one time versus this constant back and forth? And, you know, to me, I think that's where I see the breakdown far too often. I think I think everything that you just expressed is probably what runs through the minds of the listeners who are experiencing exactly what it is that you experienced last week. Listen, I think, you know, the industry is taxed heavily, right? That they, they, we are very stressed. I was reading a very interesting article about the fact that we are um, in a nursing shortage by I think 2.2 million nurses, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, when you have the lack of the nursing support from a clinical standpoint for these physicians, it forces them to have to take on more and more of the clinical role, doing things that maybe they haven't done before. So now when a Scott Kraft or a Paul Spencer or a Terry Fletcher or a Stephanie Howard sits down with a provider and tries to educate or engage with them in a meaningful dialogue the provider's natural defensive you know position comes out and says you're not a physician you don't know what i'm going through and 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 we have to agree but it still doesn't absolve them from liability they still have to understand these things we have several cases right now that are be that are either in cir circuit court of appeals they're entering district court or one super value is before the supreme court right now and it all has to do with the scienter standard which ties directly back to actual knowledge deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard for the falsity of the information contained on the claims so Let's let's go let's go to Paul for a couple minutes here and let's talk about you know um 
let's talk about the coding audits versus billing audits versus compliance audits because I think there are three distinct types of audits that have to take place and then we'll go around the table all right well uh the first thing that you have to remember about all three of those types of audits is that there should be very clear lines of demarcation as to who's performing them i mean uh, in many cases with uh practices or healthcare organizations they have a third-party billing company uh now let's define exactly what a third-party billing company is a third-party billing company receives information that you send them in order to bill insurance and do your accounts receivable. Uh, unless they are showing that they have people on staff that have incredibly high specialized knowledge, they shouldn't be doing your compliance audits and they shouldn't be doing your coding audits. Uh, you know, but you can certainly and uh, if you're, it, they should be performing the billing functions of that. Uh, and uh, one thing that I've run into quite often lately is if you're asking to do a billing audit, they better have billing information at their fingertips as far as what's gone out the door. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, particularly in the last year when we're dealing with a billing company and they can't pull up a simple report about what's been sent out in, you know, they, they have great AR reports because that tends to be the focus of their business. It's like we're getting a percentage of uh, by showing exactly what kind of money is coming in. So we can show you dollar reports all day, but when you start breaking it down to procedure codes, suddenly they have a very glossy look on their face. Uh, so uh, that's the billing portion of it. As far as coding audits, again, uh, you know, if you have a healthcare organization who doesn't have a coder on staff, you may want to consider doing that uh, with an outside firm that specializes in coding, uh, that uh, you know can prove that they have done these types of audits in the past. And as far as your compliance audits, first have a compliance program. That seems to be quite the hurdle. Uh, but uh, once you have that compliance program in place, you're looking at uh, it's it's a much more holistic thing as far as uh, coding uh, or billing audit in that you're looking for processes or things that might seem out of the ordinary based on wording in your compliance program that you should be following. Um, you know, once it's, uh, once it's solidified into a program, let's remember that it's no longer a recommendation or a suggestion. You know, it's your work product and it's something that you have to follow very carefully. So, all right, so I, I, obviously, you know, there are so many opinions, there's so many thoughts as to, okay, you know, if, if, if I'm a coder, you know, what, what does that entail? What does, what does that mean that I should be focusing on as my responsibility, as my roles and responsibilities? And I think this is really important to, to define these. Because I, I think there are definitive roles for each of these types of individuals. Um, you know, Beverly, Beverly Johnson made a, a very good comment. And, you know, it, it's, it, let me see if I can find it. Here it is. So, look, you know, having a credential behind your, mean, behind your name means that you have demonstrated the 
fundamental knowledge to be able to capture that credential. So it means that you have a level of education from a conceptual standpoint, from a theoretical standpoint, right? From a book standpoint to be able to perform certain job functions and certain job tasks. Um, but I want to talk about, because, and Terry, let me come to you, because I, I know this is, this is something that you're passionate about, right? Yes. So help me, because I know you do a lot of audits, you do a ton of audits, but you, I think, also consider yourself to be a coder. So, yeah, so let's let's kind of talk about this and let's kind of flesh this out a little bit more because I really want everybody to walk away from today's roundtable with, if not a, a, a clear delineation in job functions and job tasks, at least the ability to start to think through, look, I'm a coder and I know what I do. Does this mean that I should now consider going on and getting that? credential after my name to become an auditor because that would better define my competencies and capabilities to my employer. I mean, what say you? Well, I think one thing that, um, be, without going down a rabbit hole, when we talk about auditing, it's such a vast concept because it's not just looking at the record and assessing if what you reported is supported by what you documented. So that's the first thing. But the, the other thing is kind of going back to what you said, the role of the coder, the role of the biller and what Stephanie was saying, you know, and, and Paul and, and Scott, the role of the compliance person, or if even if you have a program, which I rarely find that, that people do. But I think that the, the role of the coder, in, in my opinion, just as far as, um, I, I guess, a, a, a normal setting, which would be, you know, you have a couple of physicians, uh, one to five or whatever, even if you have more than that, your role is to make sure that the coding, the, the, uh, the, the modifiers, the ICD-10, the CPT, they, they match what the physician's doing. And I, I guess you're spot checking, you could be extrapolating from notes, you could be coding for them. I, you know, I find on both sides, sometimes the provider's coding, sometimes they're not, and it's left up to the coder. But bringing it back to, from an auditing perspective, um, an audit for coding is to me, and I think we, we seem to be heading into what people are doing internally versus what you're hiring externally. So if you're coding internally, you're looking to say, is this supportive? Um, did you capture everything that was done on that encounter on that day? And then is it submitted timely and correctly? Billing now, when you're looking at billing, I'm noticing even when I get asked for an external billing audit, sometimes I'll pass it off because it turns into a, a revenue cycle management practice assessment. So it's not just a billing audit that now encompasses, you know, are you not just billing it right, but are you following your contract rules? Do you even know where your contracts are? Um, do you know your payer makeup? You know, how much Medicare, Medicaid, third, you know, private insurance, and that becomes something completely different. But billers, not just sending out the claim and, and, you know, sitting there kind of pumping it out. You also have to know when things come back on you. Who do you have to direct those, you know, yellow envelopes to, those, those pink windowed envelopes saying they need more information? Is it something you can handle? A coder should handle? A collector should handle? Where does that go? And then you get into compliance. And now we get into the, the NCCI edits. You get into the incident two rules, Medicare versus private insurance. There's so many moving parts to an audit. When I get asked to do an audit for a practice, and I'm just going to pick coding, for example, they usually are saying, we just want to make sure we're doing our ENM correctly. What ends up happening is 
it's E&M or it's, or it's specialty procedures, I'm either finding revenue where I'm like, why aren't you billing for this? Or I'm finding, or I'm saying, why are you billing for this? <laughs> because that's bundled and that's been bundled forever. Is that why we're getting denials? Yes, that's why you've been getting denials for the last five years. So there's so many moving pieces on what an actual audit is. I think Paul said it correctly. First of all, what's your objective for the audit? And secondly, who are what what are you looking for specifically within that audit? So if, if you're requesting it, you're an administrator listening to this podcast or watching this, what are you looking for? You know, what if you're a provider, what is it that you you're trying to gain from this? Are you trying to gain better revenue? Are you trying to see if you're compliant um, with coding, with billing, with reporting, uh, with documentation? What is your ultimate goal there? And the, the last thing I'll say before I send it over, I should say one more thing. I'm, it's never the last for me. But one of the things I find on audits is that a lot of people are doing them just to say they have been doing them. I'll do an audit and I'll find a mess and I'll be like, OK, let me spell it out for you. This is what you did correctly. This is what isn't correct. And we need to have a conversation about it. And then I hear from practice again. Or there's no corrective action plan. And a year later, they're like, hey, you did an audit for us last year. Can you do it again? And I see the same thing. And I'm sure my panel has seen the same thing as well, where it's you're going through the motions instead of asking you know, for an audit and then doing something with that information. And then just one other follow-up thing that just came to my, my mind is I'll get a lot of audit requests for, can you audit just two records for me? Can you audit just five records for me? And I know Scott and you and I have talked about this. Why? What's that going to show? That's not a focused audit. You have to have a minimum. And for me, it's a minimum of 20 per provider for each category. So they said, well, can we just send you five new patient? And no, I want to see, I want to see a certain amount per provider. And that's what the payers do. Payers won't call it credible, especially Medicare. If they don't see at least 30, that's what Medicare looks at. So I'll yep. throw it back because I go, Scott's laughing over well, there. But so, so, so a couple of things and I, I want to, oh, it's a lot of information. Just, Sorry. Yeah. No, you just, you just brought up something really significantly important. When, when practices want to do an audit and they want to call it a probe audit, they go, well, Medicare only looked at 10. That's not really a probe audit. That's just Medicare, you know, pulling some claims to get a flavor for what's going on before they decide to perform a probe audit. An actual audit requires at a minimum for Medicare 30 claims, and it should be up to 40 claims. If you look at the targeted probe and educate program, TPE, it's 30 to 40 claims is what justifies a probe. Now, Medicare, under the program integrity manual, chapter three, can sign off on a different number higher or lower to be considered a probiotic but you know one of the one of the common questions that i get and i get it all the time if i made a mistake and accidentally overbilled medicare am i really guilty of fraud and the answer is under the false claims act yes now i know the question comes up well are they really going to go after a coder sean Yes. Look at the OIG excluded list. Look at the OIG sanction list. Remember, the False Claims Act has two key factors that are particularly relevant to healthcare providers who bill Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, any federal healthcare benefit program. The first is the prohibition of all knowingly made false and fraudulent claims. And second, the statute's provision for either civil 
or criminal penalties. But I thought, you know, I thought something that would be neat. I wanted to play a little bit of a game with our panel. And I have 10 coding scenarios. And I want to get your takes on these, okay? So, uh, Stephanie, let me go to you for the first one. Let's, let's define incorrect billing codes. Just incorrect in general? Give me a definition of an incorrect billing code. Okay, your, so... Your definition. Yeah, my definition is that the code doesn't match the documentation. So the the CPT definition has not been met or payer policies have not been met. Perfect. So if you as a coder are relying on outdated billing guidance or you simply made a mistake, submitting an incorrect billing code, whether it's intentional or unintentional, actually could rise to the level of healthcare fraud. Scott Craft. Upcoding. What is your definition of upcoding? I think of upcoding, and maybe it's just the nature of that word, but I think as upcoding is when you assign a code that you know is a higher code than what you should be assigning, or I should say it has a higher value than the code that is the most appropriate code for that service. Right. Because again, and, and would anybody disagree with this, that, you know, upcoding is a more egregious form of submitting an incorrect claim for reimbursement. I think it's a much more egregious claim, right? Because uh, oh. there's actual knowledge. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, the thing I always say when I talk about something like upcoding is, I, you know, I talk about that definition as knowingly, right? But if you don't have, going back to what we said before, if you don't have the training and the foundation and education to do it right, and consequently you're just smacking a bunch of fours on things that are level threes, but frankly, you're really just, the, your, your sin is you're incompetent. It still looks like upcoding. And that's the part where you can really run into trouble. Paul Spencer, unbundling. Give me your definition of unbundling. Billing two CPT codes where one of those CPT codes is actually a component of a large evaluated procedure. Uh, so uh, basically it is a, you know, the smaller procedure in these particular cases would be a portion of the larger procedure and would therefore not be uh, billed out. Easiest example, uh, you know, uh, lysis of adhesions for abdominal surgery, you know, but we I also don't think break of, that out. Yeah. So I also think of unbundling as exploding of codes, right? And we see exploding of codes really in the laboratory world where, you know, you have a panel test, you have a panel test that is all encompassing, but to obtain a larger sum of money, you're exploding these panels to be able to capture more revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, would biofire fall into that category? <laughs> well, you know, at the very least, biofire has a uh, PLA code that you're supposed to build with one code at this point. But here's the problem. I mean, it's one thing to have a PLA code created. It's quite another 
to have an insurance carrier recognize that, particularly commercial insurance carrier, and reimburse it as an all-encompassing code. Uh, yep. You know, uh, Medicare is usually pretty good at PLA codes because they basically say, well, we're the, you know, via the uh, auspices of the FDA, we're really the ones who created this. I guess we should reimburse it if we're going to create it and we're going to recognize it under the HICPIC system. Uh, when you get to commercial insurances, it's really tempting to say, well, this is, look at all the tests that this uh, piece of equipment can run. We'll just build them all. It's like, well, the person came in and you suspected influenza. Why are you testing for 25 respiratory uh, variants that uh, aren't necessarily germane. It's nice that they found one, you know, that's great. Uh, but that's not what you were testing for. You were testing for influenza A and influenza B. And, and you know, the thing I just want to add to that right quick, and I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. because I see this no, stuff please. all the time where, you know, when we talk about compliance and when we talk about that being central to all the different activities that take place. Think of a scenario where the provider is like, well, why isn't this a level four? And somebody comes back and says, it's not a level four because level fours require the order of three labs and you've only ordered two labs. And suddenly the, in the provider's mind, it's like, well, I didn't, you know, maybe I should have just sent that throat culture in and that's the third lab. And you end up in these situations and I see this more than I'd like to see it in certain specialties where these per these people come in and it's like, yeah, I think I picked up a little bit of a cold and you're getting like strep, you're getting like the throat culture, you're getting like the COVID, you're getting the flu A and B. And, you know, you're getting like amoxicillin to cover the remote possibility that any of these things are positive. And the provider is saying, well, it's medical decision-making, it's a level four. And to me, that's really a lot of why we're having these conversations. Like the goal is to make sure it's right for what it should be based on the presenting problems. So, sorry, I just felt that that was an important point when Paul made that comment no. about note bloat with all these things that come in via orders and things of that nature. No, that's that's great. All right, Terry, I want to come to you now. Okay, I'm going to give you a Jeopardy. turn. I'll take uh, coding for 250, go. Oh, you're going <laughs> for the easy question. All right, <laughs> give me your definition of double billing. Double billing. Okay. And so, I want people to know that none of the panel knew any of these questions that I was going to ask them prior to this, this right now. So Terry, let's talk about double, let's talk about double billing. Okay. So I think this is going to be interpretive. I'm not really sure uh, what, what this could be. So for me, it would be for billing for the same service twice, but trying to bill for it in a different way. So there's also duplicate billing, which I don't think that's what you're asking for. But um, I see this sometimes in, it's not the splitter shared, but it's the dual billing for a preventative with an office visit where you don't see that significant service. And sometimes to me, that's that's double billing because you really didn't meet the standard to put the 25 modifier in an E&M. And a lot of times the practices say, well, the patient came in. Okay, well, waving hi to the patient and saying, let's go ahead and refill your scripts doesn't mean that you're treating that chronic condition. You're refilling their prescriptions. And so that's part of that preventative service. It's not significant enough to, to pull it up unless they have a complaint or there needs to be an adjustment or something needs to be addressed. Remember your rules on the ENM. So for me, I think double billing is trying to bill for something twice from a, uh, but a different way. A procedural situation I, I get all the time is in, um, in catheterization procedures in cardiology 
where you have one doctor who does a heart cath and then they transfer the patient over for a stent and the other doctor injects to see what the other doctor did and they try to bill again for another um, heart cath, which wasn't done. It was just more of a setup injection. So to me, that's double billing. Excellent. Spot on. And the last one that I would point out if you're a coder to be aware of is physician certification fraud. Any type of service that requires a physician's valid certification in the absence of that certification, if you bill for those services, you could potentially be committing healthcare fraud. Now, so we've talked about coding, but here is something that I want to move into because we started to explore the different um we started to explore the different types of audits, right? We talked about coding audits. We've talked about billing audits. Well, let's talk about billing audits for a minute. Um, and Terry didn't get angry at us and leave us. Terry uh, asked that we just don't bother her for five minutes. So uh, when, when Terry feels like coming back, she'll be here. Okay. I want to talk about billing audits because I think there is a lot of discrepancy on what constitutes a billing audit. And I'm going to come to you in a minute, Paul, because you you don't really do an extensive amount of billing audits. You do more compliance audits with me. But I want to I want to use the I want to rely on the expertise of Scott and Stephanie here for just a moment, because the two of you do a lot of and this is another fancy term, RCM reviews. RCM is, you know, it, it, it's it's a catchphrase, right? Sometimes I feel like it's a punchline as opposed to being the tagline, sort of like compliance is. But let me ask you, Stephanie, first, what for you constitutes an RCM, um, an RCM audit? So... One thing that comes to mind when we talk about this is the word investigation. And the reason that I say that is because we have to look in a lot of other places other than just data we can get out of an EMR or practice management billing system. Um, one of the things that I find, what, what I do, and I mean, Scott, you have this process really well drawn out, but one of the things I like to do first is look at the data, look at the information, but then I start my investigation where I start talking to people in the billing company or talking to staff or talking to the practice managers. And, you know, that's when I start to hear things. And I think this is funny. I thought of this earlier as you were talking, Sean. Um, one of the reviews that I did when I start to talk to this person that the doctor who owned the practice just wanted to be hands off didn't want anything to do with billing, but then he's like, why is this a train wreck? Where's my money? What's going on? And, you know, I talk with this woman from the billing company who's the head of everything that's happening for the practice. And one of the first things she tells me in kind of a complaining way is that he constantly want to bill, wants to bill fives. She knows they're not appropriate, so she just changes them to fours. There's no way fives are okay, so I'm just going to change to a four. But yet in my audit during the RCM review, threes were supported. So um, there's a lot of different moving parts. And that poses significant risk to the, bill, uh, risk to the billing companies <laughs> because 
yes. even though they think they're downcoding, they're still overcoding the services because they're taking on the liability of making clinical judgments to determine a level of service without having the clinical competency, and it's still getting it wrong. And their billing contract had stated the provider is doing their own coding. So when she makes the change, she adds that onto herself, to her own back. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where it's not just where everything's at from a data perspective. You have to understand workflow. You have to understand the structure of the organization to really dive in and find out what the problems are. And Scott, I would, I would say, I have to say, Scott has the best stories from some crazy things that he's found with some bad players and practices. I haven't found any bad players. I've just found people who are like, that's not my job. Um, they could care less. You know, I, I've run into people who hate doing AR work. So they're six months to a year behind because it's always last. Um, but Scott, you <laughs> you have I some real have, fun, I, fun stories with people who magically have money to buy expensive things. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had one of the a, a revenue. I'll just tell the story right quick. I had a revenue cycle review once, and I always ask the questions in my pre-interviews about whether they think there's an integrity issue within anybody on the staff, like which is a fancy way of saying, do we think anybody might be stealing something? And these people were like, oh, no, 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 definitely not. And then I'm in there having a conversation with the administrator and we're talking about one of the people in billing. And, and she says, well, she just bought a new BMW and her daughter's taking horseback riding lessons. And I'm like, well, that could be. Remember when he talked about like red flags and it turns out there were some integrity issues there. But um, to the broader point of, of a revenue cycle review, I sometimes oversimplify it and say that I pretend like a dollar bill is a magic carpet and I'm just going to ride it throughout the practice and I'm going to see like, you know, how it's being wasted and if it's being, you know, overutilized. And you, you do learn a, a tremendous amount about things that Stephanie talked about, like employees who are disengaged from their jobs. Uh, you know, I did one where this uh, wife got this wife got hired for, as, as the loan person in the billing department hired her husband to be the manager. And like, I get called in and they're like, well, nobody else seems to be able to work out in the billing department. <laughs> it turns out like anytime anybody did something wrong, they just would blame the, the husband and wife would both blame the other person and they would quit. So they're, you know, so you learn a lot about organizational behavior. And, and if, if you want to know one of the reasons why I come on these podcasts so often, and I talk about one of the keys to practice success is understanding who's accountable and responsible for each of the different things that happens within your organization so that you and leadership can say, well, I know through our organizational flowchart that this person is responsible for appeals for this payer, or this person is responsible for claims validation, or whatever that is, is because that is the nexus of your operation. Because if you don't have that, and this is usually what I see in the revenue cycle review, it's like, well, we see that the practice uh, potentially has uh, collectible receivables of $240,000 out there. You know, who's responsible for this aspect, right? And people just will kind of look at one another because either nobody knows or nobody wants to like claim responsibility, right? And and the first one is arguably worse because if nobody knows, you know, then people, you wonder why things aren't getting done. And so, you know, I think of a revenue cycle review, there's obviously a big component of that that's a billing audit in terms of like you're parsing data you know for better or for worse the unique thing about physician practices and healthcare accounting is it's 
incredibly stupid, right? It's probably the only universe where you have like a fake fee that you're not going to collect in its entirety, but you've got to wait until the payer acts. And then you've got to figure out like what percentage to collect from the patient. Like if I go to, you know, like Wendy's, you know, they don't charge me $10 and then like wait until somebody else pays six and then I might get back like four. And so it, it, it complicates it, but we are still responsible for having processes in place as we go through different payer policies to make sure that it's accurate. Sorry, I get fired up with revenue cycle reviews. No, no, no. I love it. It, it, it is the one thing right. every practice should do. Yep. So I, I, I want to shift because we, we were just talking about financial reviews, RCM reviews. I want to shift over to compliance reviews because we have a lot of folks that are a 1Z, 2Z doctor practice and they have one person in the, they call it the billing department. And that person is the coder, the biller, the auditor. And sometimes that person also wears other hats in the organization. So Paul, when we start thinking about the integrity of an audit for an organization that has a coder, and then that coder also performs an audit of the coding that has been done. What are the odds that Terry Fletcher is going to come out and say, I know I'm your coder, but I just did an audit of the coder and it's all screwed up. Those odds are very strong indeed. Uh, You know, um, and, and we have to think about it, not only in terms of there's only one person doing that job, but we also need to think about it in terms of power dynamics, where you're the person doing all of that work in that practice, and you are probably reporting directly to the physician in that practice, you know, who at the end of the day is the final arbiter of all decisions made as that practice either grows or stays the same, or, you know, the, the old, uh, saw of, I just want to treat my patients, you handle everything on that end. Uh, You know, and unfortunately, what we see in a lot of those cases is we see uh, someone who uh, is afraid to step up and afraid to say, you know, we have an issue here with with a certain code that we're billing or, uh, you know, the way you're documenting a certain service. Uh, You know, uh, the the other... uh, cliche of, I don't want to bother the doctor with this, you know, while they're seeing patients, you know, which is probably the absolute worst attitude. And you have no, the the biggest issue there is that you don't have any idea where that physician's knowledge base is coming from. We've talked before on this podcast about what I call the well-informed colleague, the guy that uh, the doctor met at some uh, conference somewhere who had the best gold watch in the area and says, I get paid for this. Well, you know, they're getting paid for that uh, probably in another state, uh, perhaps not even in the same specialty as you are, and perhaps erroneously, you know, which uh, is is a very strong indicator that you've got a problem. So, uh, you know, the chances of uh, somebody coming in from the outside in a situation where you have that, um, you know, First of all, you have to convince the uh, the providers or other owners of the practice, hey, 
it's probably time that we bring somebody in from the outside to take a look at things. And even that from an internal dynamics and internal power structure issue could be an enormous hurdle to cross. But, you know, depending on the size of your staff, you certainly want to bring in an outside set of eyes every once in a while just to make sure that you're doing things compliantly. Agree. Because, again, it shows objectivity, it shows independence, and it shows the willingness to create a culture of compliance in the organization to understand where the problems are. So I, I have a I have a funny one, and and Terry, thanks for prompting this. So I'm a physician. I have an EMR. Everybody's talking about Chat GPT and artificial intelligence and how in, in, how machine learning is so brilliant. So if if it starts to detect my patterns of coding, right? And it's selecting my CPT codes for me. And we know computers never make mistakes. Do I actually really need to have an audit performed, Stephanie? Yes. And so I want to say this really fast. I just saw the author, David Sedaris, on Friday night. And on his tour, he created essays that he's reading that aren't published yet. Well, one of the best parts of the night was when he took out his friend, put his name into one of the AI systems, and it produced what this AI system thought he would write an essay like. And it was so dull. So the what he did is he went in and he rewrote the AI's essay in his own words and added all of his craziness and it was brilliant. It was really funny. Um, but it just made me think of the podcast because we keep talking about AI so much. So we have to be careful because when we think about the EMR system, and there's one particular one that I think of often where I don't even know if it's built on AI, but they try to automate a lot of what's going into the notes. We still miss the human component, which is required for medical necessity. And when we think about our new MDM grid, for example, the first column with presenting problems is very heavily based on medical necessity and what the provider is showing us in the notes. Can we find acute complicated um, without, you know, our brains looking at what's in front of us and seeing what the provider is showing us? So I don't feel like the whole process overall can be done from a point and click standpoint. I don't feel like it can just be abstracted out from the use of, uh, of the EMR. Um, I think that's what drives a lot of overcoding that we're seeing right now is there's not that final look at, you know, how does this ultimately level out? Um, one other thing too, before I throw this to you, Terry, I actually have found this one EMR system, I'm not going to call it out, but this one system that I find, every time I meet with clients who are using it, they're actually undercoding because some of the process that's driving their E&M code selection is based on how their clinical staff does the intake with the patient. And what I found out in one of the practices where this was the largest problem, the clinical staff had no idea what those presenting problems were. They know nothing about E&M guidelines, and they had no idea that their part of the process was prompting the downfall of under undercoding. So we actually found, you know, a lot of misrevenue in that particular practice. 
Well, and it's funny what you were saying um, that I don't remember who was saying it as far as the, the chat, I think Sean on chat GPT and stuff, somebody put my name in and apparently I used to be a drummer for Led Zeppelin and I went to Stanford and I was like, no, I went to Penn State, I was never a drummer. I did sing a little bit in high school, but oh my gosh, I was like, like thinking that was the funniest thing ever. But one of the things on the, on the auditing that Stephanie brought up, which I just thought happens a lot on the audits that I do too, is that people are forgetting that the 2021 and the 2023 guidelines, let's just call them the new guidelines, they added words to each element of medical decision-making. So, and a lot of people haven't updated their template in their EMR. They're still using the 95, 97 guidelines. And so I'm not seeing problems. What's the word? Addressed, um, you know, on the information as far as the data. We had all those data points before, but now it's an analyzed. And then, then with the risk, it's like, how does it contribute to the overall morbidity and mortality? So they added things to what was already in place and nobody's updated their template. And so I get that a lot. My EMR does my coding for me. Why do I need an audit? Oh my goodness, face plant. And the other thing is, um, I for those of you that are internally auditing, I strongly advise or strongly recommend or strongly ask you to, to put something together for your providers, even if you think everything's done okay is to really consider an external audit. Remember, we don't have a stake in being employed by your practice. You do. And sometimes I think that does factor into the results of an audit. I'm not saying you would skew it. I'm not saying you would give information that is only favorable, but I think that sometimes internal auditors, and I see this, they get used to kind of like what Stephanie said on what, a, what an EMR can do. I, I was recently doing an audit that was still handwritten notes. And they were saying, well, I can kind of see what the doctor meant here. No, it's not what they kind of meant. It's what they actually documented that any payer, any lay person can read legibly. And it, it just, it was awful. And they were, they were making assumptions for level fours and fives. It didn't even meet a level one. There wasn't even a way to, to say it was a, a, you know, a record. I actually sent a couple to Sean under our BAA. And I was like, Sean, what is this? He's like, I don't know. What do you think it is? <laughs> Let's hold it up to the light. It was awful. I think I sent one to, to Scott too. And he's like, well, I'm not sure what this is, Terry. <laughs> so um, all I'm saying is that external audits, we don't have a stake in being employed there. We take the information, all of us on the panel, and we basically tell you what it is for what it is. And, um, you know, it's, it's an audit that I, I think that, I don't know if the word is truthful, but it's, it's basically an audit with, with no inference to, I want this doctor to like me, or I want to make sure that they think this is okay. It's based on black and kind of black and white as far as what we put out there. So I'm just going to, how do I word that? I'm, I'm not saying it the right way. Well, and I, I think the very, very worst, the very, very worst thing you'll get out of it the, or the least or whatever you want to say it's just a different perspective validating the quality of the work. But how often do you do, how often do I as an external auditor come back and say, well, it turns out you've just been doing everything exactly right all along and <laughs> appreciate the opportunity, right? In reality, like you, you're, we're picking out a lot of those things. And I, and I think, you know, you could say this about a lot of areas in life, but different perspectives are good. And when you are only, when you're placing all of your eggs in the one basket to use a good Easter analogy, uh, or you're reliant on one person as your sage of truth for all of your coding and billing knowledge within your organization, that person better be right about everything, right? Or, or, or there's a potential for risk. And, and so I think anytime you can get a different perspective, it's beneficial. All right. So before we leave, I, I, I wanted to save the best for last. 
So we we got into a little bit of a discussion about artificial intelligence. And today I received a very interesting email from a company called Decipher AI. Or it's Decipher, D-E-C-I-P-H-R dot AI. And the individual uh, said that they listened to our last episode and the part where you guys talked about the power and reach of state matters definitely landed. Now, here's the fun part. I thought about this quote a lot. It's been more than 30 years since they first initiated Incident 2 and doctors still aren't getting it done correctly. I wanted to reach out because I'd love to create extra content from the podcast episode for you. They want to, and and this is what I want to do. I, I've I've responded to them this morning. They're a group out of Melbourne, Australia, and I responded to them this morning. So they are going to use their machine learning. They're going to take our podcast from our Monday roundtable of last week, and they're going to plug it into their Decipher AI program and they are going to send me back how that discussion and that quote will be taken even further into this robust outcome now i'm not doubting what they can do i responded and said i'm fascinated i would absolutely love to see what you guys do um so depending on the time zone and where they are in Australia right now may not have something today, but hopefully by tomorrow we should have something and it will give the rest of us on the panel an opportunity to kind of digest it, disseminate it, and let you know exactly what we think about it. Because I've had a chance to play with Chat GPT and I have a lot of concerns because I think providers are going to rely on Chat GPT to create progress notes for encounters, which is going to lead to an overwhelming amount of cloning of their documentation which will create significant risks um i also believe that a lot will be missed because again with artificial intelligence remember the more you feed it the more it becomes intelligent and if you don't have things to plug into it it's not going to learn it's going to learn basics so be careful so i'm going to go ahead and end our podcast here I want to thank Scott, Stephanie, Paul, Terry, again, for always being available. And to each and every single one of you, thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us. Terry will be back with me tomorrow for our Hashtag Terry Tuesday episode. And then I will be out for the rest of the week, but we will be back again next Monday with an all-brand-new Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable and hopefully our ability to share with you our artificial intelligence that was built for us. So until then, remember, be good to yourself, and more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.